a student at the Moody Bible Institute years ago, I was introduced to a book called The Peace Child and then a movie by the same name. And I was absolutely captivated by what I'll call the Neil Armstrong of the evangelical 20th century. A missionary who put his wife and his seven-month-old son into a canoe and went 10 hours up a river to reach a people that had never been reached before by the gospel. And I was blown away just by God and by God's love for us that would motivate anybody to do that, and also by the love that God puts into the human heart to, to do such a thing. And so I'm going to introduce Don Richardson, who came to be part of our weekend. Come on up, Don. Thank you for being here. Can we give a warm welcome to uh, one of my heroes? Thank you, Scott. May God forgive you for your exaggerations, and forgive me for enjoying them. It's such a pleasure to be your guest, and I'm very thankful to Rainey Abbott, who met my wife and me in Orlando, and I guess she heard me speak there and decided to recommend me. Thank you for that. So, you've heard me introduced, but I'm beginning this message drawing your attention to the most important introduction in the history of mankind. The introduction of Jesus as the Messiah among the Jewish people about 2,000 years ago. And who was privileged to make that most important ever introduction? A man named John the Baptist. For the purpose of that introduction, John used what must surely be regarded as the most meaningful metaphor ever used in any language. Pointing to Jesus of Nazareth that day, John the Baptist said, Look! The Lamb of God, who does what? Say it with me, please. Who takes away the sins of the world. Believe me, that metaphor was extremely meaningful for the Jewish people because for centuries they'd been offering animal sacrifices. And those who sacrificed oxen, goats, sheep, even doves probably thought that that animal blood was atoning for their sin, their breaking of God's law. Does animal blood really atone for anyone's sin? No, we read in the epistle to the Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats does not put away sin. Does that mean then that those animal sacrifices were offered in vain? No. Although those sacrifices did not actually atone for anyone's sin, they served another purpose. They served as what I'm going to call a cultural compass a kind of compass designed not to point to one place, as physical compasses do, a kind of compass designed instead to point to one person, foreshadowing the one who would come into the world and would be the Lamb of God, the one whose shed blood would indeed atone for the sin of all who call upon God in repentance and faith. Well. That's one example of an Old Testament cultural compass identified by John the Baptist as pointing forward in time to Jesus. That was John chapter 1, verse 29, my first text. But there are other examples. Open your Bible to John chapter 3, read verse 14. Our Lord conversing with an instructor of the Jewish law named Nicodemus said something that would have had special meaning to a man like Nicodemus. 
Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Thus Jesus identified that event from the Exodus account as foreshadowing him lifted up on the cross. Turn a couple more pages in the Gospel of John. You're in chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 28. There you find that Jesus made reference to the provision of the manna, the bread from heaven for the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. And on that basis said, Moses gave you not the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven, he went on to explain, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus declared that he is that bread of life. Three examples just from the early chapters of the Gospel of John. Fellow Christian, as you read on through the New Testament, you'll find many more examples where writers of the Old Testament refer to something in Old Testament culture as foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing one aspect or another of redemption later to be revealed in its fullness with the advent of the Son of God. I'm sure you'll agree it was kind of God to give the Jewish people all those foreshadowings of the one who would be the promised deliverer, the promised Savior, so that they might have basis to recognize him by the fact that he fulfilled all of these foreshadowings. But now I invite you to ponder a major question with me. Are you ready for a major question? Are you? All right, here it is. That's fine for the Jewish people, but what about the rest of mankind? What about the human race all around the world? Did God take care to give only one small percentage of mankind foreshadowings of the Savior and leave the rest of the human race without that providence? Down through the centuries, those of us have been trained to be frontier crossers with the gospel, encouraged to go out into regions of the world where the message had never been proclaimed, learn languages in which it had never been expressed, We're not advised to expect to find what could be called Gentile cultural compasses waiting out there in the soil of those faraway cultures to serve the same purpose that the analogies I just quoted from the Gospel of John served. I guess our instructors didn't think God went to that much trouble. In spite of the fact that missionary instructors didn't think that such things would be waiting out there there on the other side of those faraway frontiers, Guess what we frontier crossers have been finding and making excellent use of down through the centuries? Gentile cultural compasses. We've been privileged to loosen little arrows on the dials of those compasses and see those arrows point men and women to Jesus in culturally relevant, poignantly meaningful ways. And as a result, our hearts and minds are open to receive the gospel and believe on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And often when we frontier crosses came back home for a furlough, we didn't even bother to tell our instructors about the amazing things we found out there. I guess we thought it might confuse them, might not fit into their systematic theology, so we've tended to leave them in the dark. Hey, I'm asking you, would you like me to share some secrets with you from the other side of those frontiers this morning? Are you sure you want me to? You do? Oh, I just love it when people really want me to tell them what I really want to tell them. All right, you asked for it. I'm taking you back to 1807. And here we are standing by the docks in a port city of China. Here's a ship flying a British flag. It's docking. 
Who's this one Britisher disembarking? Robert Morrison. Why is Robert setting foot in China in 1807? Oh, he's here to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. Doesn't he know there are already four other ancient religions on the scene in China? Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, and in some areas of China, even Islam is already entrenched. What chances one man have to establish a significant foothold for the Church of Jesus Christ against such odds? Look at the expression on Robert's face. I think he's sorely tempted to feel discouraged about his mission. He's just found out he's got to learn Chinese, which is a tonal language. That means it's not enough to produce the right sound with your vocal cords. You have to produce the right sound with the right pitch. If you think you're saying grandmother, but you pitch it wrong, the Chinese people hear you saying pig. You have to kind of sing Chinese, not just speak it. Oh, now look at the expression on his face. He's found something else about Chinese language. The ancestors of the Chinese 40 centuries earlier did not sit down and invent a phonetic alphabet of 26 or so symbols like our A to Z. They wanted something more complex than that, and they got it. They invented a writing system that utilizes more than 200 little pictures called radicals that get combined in complex ways to make words. Imagine Robert Morrison taking one look at Chinese writing, shaking his head in dismay, and saying with a sigh, This reminds me of chicken tracks in the mud. He may have been tempted to complain just a little bit to God, saying, Where were you, Lord, when they invented this? Couldn't you have exercised a little more of your marvelous capacity for sovereignty, causing him up with something simpler? But he had no choice. He had to master Chinese. Robert found a Chinese man who had some knowledge of English and was willing to use his rather minimal knowledge of English to help Robert Morrison crack the code of Chinese grammar and elicit vocabulary. And Robert was in for a surprise, sitting down one morning with his Chinese language instructor. He gave the man his pen and said, Please show me how do you use these complex symbols to form the word that means righteousness in your language. Chinese man took Robert's pen and went swish, 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 and showed him the written form of that word. Imagine Robert's surprise when he saw the man had drawn two of the more than 200 options, placing one little picture over another. He saw the upper symbol was the symbol for a lamb. And underneath it, another little picture that means I, first-person singular pronoun. He suddenly realized when the Chinese write the word that means righteous, they're actually writing the lamb over me, righteous. The same metaphor that John the Baptist used to introduce Jesus among the Jewish people 2,000 years ago was there and had been there for 4,000 years in the Chinese writing system, waiting for someone like Robert Morrison to discover it and say to that Chinese language helper, Sir, do you know where is the Lamb under whom you and I must be found to be righteous in the sight of God? God is Shangti in Chinese. Chinese man said, no, I don't know where that limb is. How about you, foreigner? Do you know? Enabling Robert Borson to say, oh, do I have good news for you and for the Chinese people. And here is, if you can see it from where you're sitting, that Chinese word. The red is the symbol for a lamb. The white part 
is the symbol for the first person singular pronoun. And Robert said to himself, if there's one spiritually significant encoded message in this ancient writing system, there may be others. I must press on with my study and see what else is awaiting recognition here. And day after day, Robert began to discover dozens and eventually 120 Chinese words that had spiritually significant messages encoded according to how the ancestors of the Chinese 4,000 years earlier had decided to combine little pictures instead of phonetic symbols to make words. Robert found the Chinese symbol for a uh, covet requires you to draw two trees and a woman standing between the two trees making some kind of a choice. What does that have to do with coveting? Hmm. And the Chinese symbol for a ship is a ship with eight people sailing in it. You have to specify the number eight or you will lose one mark in the Chinese language exam. Why eight people sailing in a ship? According to Genesis, what was the first ship that ever floated? How many people were delivered from the flood in the ark? Ocho personas, eight people in the ship. And the Chinese word for come, just the verb come, is more complex. To begin, you draw the symbol for a tree at the center, and it's a tree shaped like, guess what? Like a cross. Now, the Chinese symbol for a man is an upside-down Y. Guess what is superimposed right over the center of the cross-shaped tree? An upside-down Y, a man suspended on a tree. Another part of it means mankind, and the meaning of this combination is the verb come. It reads like an encoded message, mankind come to the man who hung on a tree. The Chinese people, of course, had no inkling of the significance of these symbols, but Robert Morrison did. And he was privileged to loosen little arrows on 120 Chinese cultural compasses and show the Chinese people how they were all pointing to one person, Jesus. So he began to preach the gospel. And Chinese people, of course, there were those who opposed him, calling him the foreign devil. And his teaching, foreign devil's teaching. But then Chinese people began to say, wait a minute, look what he's doing. He's showing us that somehow our own ancestors anticipated the teaching that he would bring to our nation from this book. So some began to turn to the Lord. Robert Morrison wrote letters to his supporters back in England, letters that took about six months to get there. Six months, again, for an answer to come back. Email and Skype were not invented yet. And as his letters were being read in front of congregations of Christians, people were amazed. They said, that's incredible. What's happening out there in China? By the way, who was that fellow we sent out there? Robert Morrison never heard of him. By the way, how many others did we send out to China with him? And the elders of commissioned Robert to go to China rather sheepishly said, actually, we sent only him and we almost weren't persuaded to send him. Didn't think it would be worth the time and trouble and expense, but apparently it is. So Christians began to say, are there others willing to follow the trail Robert has blazed out to China? If there are, let's send them as well. And there were others willing to go, like Hudson Taylor and Maria. And Jonathan Goforth from up in Canada and his wife Rosalind and eventually a few thousand others. And soon the gospel was being preached everywhere in China. And thousands of churches were planted. And in spite of the fact that communism expelled all the missionaries from China in 1949 and killed half of the pastors, confiscated all the church buildings, all the Christian schools, 
changed the church buildings into communist warehouses and warned the surviving Chinese Christians, unless you abandon your faith in Jesus, you cannot be employed by the government, you cannot be a teacher in any school. Christians can only be grave diggers, garbage collectors, or tillers of the fields and the communes, nothing more. And as a result of the martyrdoms and the fear of some Chinese who capitulated to the pressure of communist oppression, the number of Christians plummeted from about one million down to 300,000 survivors who remained faithful. And the communists decided to scatter them thinly as possible throughout the commune system, saying if we leave too many Christians in one commune, they'll find each other and have their secret Christian meetings, and that'll encourage their faith, and we don't want their faith encouraged, so let's scatter them so thinly they won't be able to have any secret Christian meetings, won't be able to find other Christians in the process of scattering the Christians as thinly as possible throughout the entire commune system in China. The Chinese Communist government, completely at its own expense, became the most efficient missionary-sending organization in 2,000 years of church history. And the Christians they scattered so thinly did, of course, suffer from loneliness and heartache as relatives, dear friends, were separated from each other, perhaps never to meet again in this world. But how did they solve their loneliness problem? Besides having fellowship with Jesus, and having the joy of the Holy Spirit, they befriended non-Christian Chinese and demonstrated the love of Christ. They were noted for compassion, honesty, integrity, and people were drawn to them in increasing numbers. And as a result of the thin scattering of 300,000 surviving Christians from the early 1950s until now, it is estimated the number of Christians in China has climbed well past the 100 million mark and is gaining at about 32,000 new believers every day net gain. I ask you, was it worthwhile for Robert Morrison to go to China and be an example to the church that this was a nation that had to be won? Even secular scholars are writing papers now about what they call the Christianization of communist China. And the communists are saying somehow we made a mistake here. There's so many Christians, we just got to show them a little bit of goodwill. So they grudgingly begin to show a little bit of goodwill to the Christians by giving some of the warehouses back to them. And the Christians gladly accept them back, refurbish them as the churches they originally were. And so many Chinese Christians and other curious people throng to attend those reopened churches. They've had to establish a rule for some of them, even though they may have multiple services every Lord's Day. There's still a, a, a rule that says you are not permitted to attend this church two Sundays in a row. If you do, you'll be stealing st standing room only from other people that need to hear the Word of God. Elsewhere in the world, pastors are frequently heard to say, I didn't see you in church last Sunday. In China, some pastors are more likely to be heard saying, Wait, didn't I see you in church last Sunday? <laughs> Out. Give your pastors that problem. They'll love you for it, I think. So did God prepare the gospel for China as well as for people like the Jews? And did he even prepare the Chinese people in unexpected ways? Gives them some basis to hear the ring of truth in a message that otherwise might have been dismissed as foreign and not for them. Well... <clears throat> That little jaunt back in time didn't jar your bones too much, did it? Want another little trip? 
On the count of three, one, two, three, it's 1792, we're standing in India, the world's second most populous nation. Here is a man, another Englishman named William Carey, and his wife Dorothy, who didn't want to be a missionary, but had to go with her husband because he was called in every cell of his DNA to be a missionary. And <clears throat> they're experiencing probably more severe culture shock than Robert Morrison would experience a few years later in China because they soon discovered in India if a Hindu man died, guess what had to happen to his widow? She had to be burned alive on the same pile of firewood on which her husband's body was cremated, a Hindu custom called sati. As a result of William Carey's influence, the British colonial government outlawed that cruel custom. You can be sure because William Carey went to India in 1792, several million widows in, in India owed the extension of their lives beyond the death of their husbands to the goodness of God reaching India through him and those who followed him out to India. There was also the world's most massive system of racist apartheid. Everybody thinks the only place in the world where there's racist apartheid, South Africa. No, there's a much greater system of racist apartheid in India because the original inhabitants of India were a race called Dravidians. Later, the Aryan race invaded from the north and the Aryan conquerors set themselves up as high-caste Hindus relegating hundreds of millions of Dravidians to be the low-caste Hindus. And the lowest of the low are called Dalits. That means untouchables. Hindu priests teach Dravidians of the untouchable class, you must take care, make sure that not even so much as your shadow touches the skin of a high-caste person because even your shadow is defiling to a genuine human being. They're dismissed as virtually subhuman, unworthy even to be touched by a real human being. And it's racist because it's Aryans versus Dravidians. Does that sound like racist apartheid? But the world has such a double standard, justifiably opposing racist apartheid in South Africa till it's finally abolished, but overlooking, appeasing, condoning, ignoring a massively greater system of racist apartheid, in Hindu, especially in Hindu North India. There are some areas of Hindu that are predominantly Christian. The Apostle Thomas planted churches in India, the southern tip of India, in the first century, and they're called the Martoma churches. And if you don't agree that the Apostle Thomas planted their churches, they may not invite you to lunch. And there's millions of tribal Christians in the extreme east of India who turned to the Lord in like tidal waves of response back in the 1800s. Well, it didn't seem likely to William Carey that he could expect to find anything in the context of Hinduism. There would be there like a cultural compass pointing Hindu people to Jesus in a meaningful way. But lo and behold, as William and others learned language after language spoken in India, they eventually learned a language called Sanskrit, Sanskrit is to India what Latin is to our Western civilization, a language which is no longer spoken in the street, but it has a significant body of literature preserved in it. And as missionaries learned Sanskrit, they began to read the oldest Sanskrit literature. And that means things written 
perhaps as long ago as 4,000 years. About the same time, the ancestors of the Chinese were inventing their writing system north of the Himalaya mountains. Sages, scholars, Job-like persons were writing things down in the Vedic language, the Vedic literature written in Sanskrit, and those writings include some amazing references. For example, they found an ancient reference in the Vedas written in Sanskrit to an upside-down tree. Now, what can cause a tree to be upside-down besides a tornado, Hurricane Katrina, or a bulldozer? This is a tree that is upside-down because it is rooted in heaven and it grows down toward the earth instead of up from the earth. It spreads its branches out above the earth in every possible direction, yielding fruit for all mankind. It goes on to say, the trunk of the upside-down tree will be gashed, and the sap that bleeds from the wound in the side of the upside-down tree, the tree rooted in heaven, is for the healing of mankind, nourishing fruit from the branches, healing sap from a wound in the side. That's a very strange metaphor. In spite of its strangeness, men and women, does it remind you of someone you know and love? Who else but Jesus could possibly fulfill the implications of that 4,000-year-old metaphor preserved in India? And I've had people tell me, Don, I went to India as a tourist. My wife and I went into a gift shop. And here was a great big tapestry hanging on the wall of the gift shop with an upside-down tree. I was sorely tempted to say to the owner, don't you know your employees hung it upside down? But my wife said, shh, no, it's probably supposed to be that way. And now I realize it was supposed to be that way. People have told me they've seen ceramic tiles glued on walls in India with an upside-down tree. And someone said, if only I'd asked my Hindu friends, why are these tiles upside down? The man who glued them on must have been on something. If only I'd been curious and asked why, I would have found something that I could have used to point my Hindu friends to Jesus. And so it goes around the world, and now more and more people are turning to the Lord in India. And where do you suppose it, the greatest response to the gospel in India would be? Among the high caste Hindus on their pedestal of privilege or among the Dravidians, especially the Dalits? That's where the greatest response is happening. It's estimated several hundred house churches are opening the doors for the first time every month across India as more and more Dalits are learning through the gospel of Jesus Christ that they dismissed as untouchables in Hinduism, are created in whose image? The image of God. And who loved them enough to die to atone for their sin? God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're invited by faith in him to enjoy not some uh, beggarly kind of citizenship, but full citizenship in the most glorious kingdom that will ever be, the kingdom of God. Does that sound like good news? or untouchables in India. Indeed it does. Well, I've just given you two examples, but there are so many, and I'm running out of time. But if this message is serving you as a kind of appetizer, and what's supposed to follow the appetizer? The main course. Because 
I had an amazing experience as a young missionary in my mid-twenties. We arrived out in the jungles of New Guinea under a mission called World Team. Please, everyone, say World Team. Now please say worldteam.org. Look us up on the web. We're in 27 nations planting churches where none have ever existed, crossing new frontiers, welcoming teams of young men and women from churches like this to raise their support, and we help them get their visas and make sure they get their monthly allotments so they can serve the Lord in faraway places. And Carol and I went to the big island of New Guinea, north of Australia, an island inhabited by 1,000 different tribes, speaking a 1,000 languages. It's a big island. It's 1,500 miles long, 500 miles at the widest, shaped like a dinosaur. And down in the belly of the dinosaur was a newly discovered tribe called the Sawi, and they were known to be cannibals and headhunters. They'd never heard of judges, jails, policemen, or law courts. And so my colleague said, you're going to that tribe, the, the Sawi? We, we think they're called the Sawi. You think they'll invite you to dinner or to be dinner? But Carol and I had such deep assurance as if the Spirit of God was whispering to us, I know the Sawi are cannibals. I know the hunters. Don't worry about things like that. I've taken care of everything. They'll welcome you. And sure enough, they did because they've been hearing positive reports about tall, pale, sickly-looking beings called tuans. That means European types. And all the reports about tuans were so positive, they were eager to welcome a tuan. And the other tribes were telling them, don't get your hopes up. They're a scarce commodity. There's not enough for every tribe to have one, let alone every village. These rare beings called tuans. But I'm, I'm a tuan. I went among them and used sign language to indicate I wanted to help to build a little house. They shouted for joy, helped me build a little 20-foot by 20-foot, 400-square-foot jungle home under a thatch roof. I called it our thatch box because it looked like a little matchbox with thatch. And <clears throat> then I brought my wife and baby son, and we took up residence, and they danced around the little house almost nonstop for three nights and two days. And I was so eager to learn the Sawi language, I went down by the river, while most of them were still pounding their drums and chanting, dancing around the house, a few of them followed me down by the river, and I had to learn their language. I didn't have a dictionary for their language. I had no grammar to help me study their language. All I had to do was start pointing at things, hoping they would give me a word in their language for whatever I pointed at. So I began by pointing at a man. They looked at me curiously. One of them said, Didig. I wrote down, Didig means man. Then I pointed at a woman, and they said, Didig. I thought perhaps it just means person without regard to gender. Crossed out man wrote person. But then I pointed at a dog and they said, Didi. <laughs> I pointed at a house, a tree, a canoe, a paddle, a river. No matter what I pointed at, they kept saying, But then I was saying, Lord, have you led me halfway around the world to learn a language that has only one word? <laughs> Finally, I realized what Didig meant. Finger. <laughs> It is not their body language to point with one finger. They were probably mumbling, this tuan is so dense, he keeps holding up his finger. We can tell him the word, he just keeps asking us to repeat it. Do we have to stand here all day saying nothing but finger, finger, finger? What's the point? Are all tuans as dense as this one? Did we get the dumbest one that was left over? Later I found I had to learn to point with my lips. 
in our culture, you know what that's asking for. This was just the beginning <laughs> of running a gauntlet of uh, misunderstandings and then finding the understandings, finding the clues and analyzing the grammar of their language and learning to speak it and proclaim Jesus. And when I began to proclaim him, one day I told him how one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, turned against his friend and master and betrayed him with a kiss to be led away and slain. Who did they think was the hero? Judas. They said, Don, that man Judas is the sort of man we admire as a master of treachery. Tell us more about him. That was not the response I was expecting. I sat there among them praying, Help, Lord, I need a gift of wisdom here. You all know what the Bible says. If any man lack wisdom, let him take a further course in seminary. <laughs> what does it really say? Let him ask of God. And, of course, God often leads the asker to study somewhere in an excellent school. We know that. But there was no school that could have helped me in that situation. I had to trust God. And God had an answer to my prayer for a gift of wisdom. But I don't have time to tell you about it if you were here Friday evening, you heard me describe it. And if you were some of the men that came for the men's breakfast yesterday morning, I explained a little more about it there. The rest of you will just need to get a copy of the book called Peace Child or a copy of the DVD with a thousand Sawi reenacting the story. Sorry, but I have to go to another service in another town. So, um, but if you feel like this message has appetized you to want the main course, about these cultural compasses. There's an incredible variety of them. God is such a genius in subtle communication. He has such amazing ways of giving people a sign in their own culture that the gospel is a message that is targeted to them. It is for them. It's not just for foreigners. So these things are out there, and servants of Christ are using them, loosening little arrows on the dials of of these cultures. So you can read, and Peace Child is one book, Lords of the Earth is another, and a third book. By then I was getting so many examples as more and more missionaries who read my first two books said, Don, you want another example from where we are? And I said, yes. So then I authored Eternity in the Hearts, which has 28 examples of these cultural compasses in their incredible variety. Proving that God who prepared the gospel for all peoples on earth has done something else, and what is that? prepared the peoples of the earth for the gospel that he's prepared for them. So what then is this thing we call missions? Some Christians think missions is where you send those who are zealous but otherwise not qualified to be good pastors. Seminary professors, send them off to faraway nations where people may not notice their shortcomings. Others say it's only for Christians who are so holy they can read at night without bed lamps. The light of their halo suffices. What is it really? God prepared messengers like those that you saw on Skype and those that I've told you about and many others. God prepared messengers bringing the God-prepared message to God-prepared people. Thank you. God bless you. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And that's not just Papua New Guinea, you know, that's Sugar Grove. That's here and everywhere, everywhere in between. And uh, we're just going to close with a word of prayer and ask God to continue to 
build this fire that's uh, growing within us to bring glory to his name. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you in the context of the story that you're putting together, Lord, the revealed story of the pages of Scripture, that first visit. We know that you're coming again. And now in between, Lord, those visits, we know that you are here through your Holy Spirit. Help us to be filled with anticipation that as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would not fulfill the desires of the flesh, but we would truly, Lord, be able to fulfill your will. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.